This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Depression and Anxiety in the Young. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Nelson Mandela said, the brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Fear is a natural and healthy emotion that helps us avoid danger and heightens our senses to react quickly in a pinch. But it can also go the other way. Crippling fear and catastrophizing can negatively impact a person's daily life and be a sign of anxiety. Mental health disorders like depression and anxiety are becoming increasingly common, especially in our young people. The National Institute of Mental Health reports nearly a third of adolescents aged 13 to 18 have an anxiety disorder. In fact, earlier this year in October, the U.S. Preventative Task Services Task Force released a new recommendation to screen children and adolescents aged 8 to 18 for anxiety. This is in addition to their existing recommendation to screen 12 to 18-year-olds for major depressive disorder. With adolescent and young adult mental health disorders becoming so commonplace, I have invited two of Ohio State University's MedPeds experts to review anxiety and depression in the young. I am pleased to introduce Dr. Susie Friedman and Dr. Allison Rossetti. Susie is an assistant professor of internal medicine who practices MedPeds primary care and has done additional training in pediatric anxiety. And Allison is an assistant professor of internal medicine who practices both adult and pediatric hospital medicine, where she frequently encounters patients hospitalized with mental health crises. Also serve it, serves as the MedPeds residency program director. Susie, Allison, welcome to MedNet. Thank you Thank so much you. for having us, Jingjing. Nice to be here. Thanks. I'm so excited to hear your talk. Susie, um, how does anxiety differ in presentation between an adult and a child or adolescent? 
I think it's important to keep in mind um, with anxiety in younger people is that it may present with somatic complaints more than um, typically with adults, they're going to recognize um, some of those feelings of anxiety or depression, um, but not so much the case for younger people in some cases. So looking for um, symptoms of things like headaches and um, stomach aches and other somatic complaints, especially when they're triggered by something that is increasing those symptoms. Okay, that's a good point. And Allison, how about depression? How does that differ in presentation between an adult and an adolescent? Yeah, so we definitely see difference between the prepubertal patient or prepubertal child and the postpubertal patient or, or adolescent. The prepubertal child is more likely um, to have psychomotor agitation, um, more likely to have increasing phobias or fears, so school avoidance or school phobias, uh, similarly to anxiety, more somatic complaints. And importantly, there tends to be a one-to-one -one ratio of male to female in that presentation. That ratio changes in the post-pubertal patient, so the adolescent and young adult, where females actually increase. So it's more of a two-to-one ratio, female to male. And instead of psychomotor agitation, actually more psychomotor depression. So lethargy, apathy, lack of interest, increased sleep, um, are those sort of kind of similar symptoms that you might see in that post-pubertal patient with depression. Okay, thanks, Allison. That's really helpful. Before we begin, I wanted to remind you to send us your questions and your suggestions using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast player. You can also find all 120 of our programs on our website at ccme.osu.edu or by podcast under the MedNet 21 CME podcast. Now let's get started. Susie, take it away. Great. Thank you so much, Jingjing. So we're going to talk first about anxiety, and then we'll talk a little bit more about depression with Dr. Rossetti. So some objectives for our presentation today is that we're going to review the screening processes and diagnoses of anxiety and depression in adolescents and young adults. We'll discuss evidence-based recommendations for first-line treatment of anxiety and depression in adolescents and young adults. And we'll also talk about some indications for psychiatry referral. So why are we talking about this topic today? Half of mental health disorders begin by age 14 and the rates continue to rise. This is a very common problem that we're handling in our clinics and in the hospitals. The COVID-19 pandemic has further strained our system, which was already overburdened to begin with. Um, with all of the changes with COVID-19 and isolation and um, other, other changes with the pandemic, um, many young people are struggling to have social outlets and this has further strained their uh, mental health. And then we also know that the treatment improves outcomes. So if we recognize these conditions and treat them, then we can improve our patient outcomes. So I wanted to start with a case today that we'll revisit throughout the talk about anxiety. So we have an 11-year-old male. He presents for his well-child check. Mom noticed that he's a little bit more irritable and he's getting upset more easily and expressing more anger at family members. He's been complaining of stomach aches, especially during the school week. Um, he has regular soft bowel movements and no other GI complaints. Recently, he started using a nightlight because he reports feeling afraid of the dark. He's usually an excellent student, but grades are slipping and are now average the past semester because he is easily distracted and has been forgetting to complete some assignments. Um, one thing to note is his parents are going through a divorce, but it's been fairly amicable and the kids are splitting time between their parents. So. Thinking about this case, what type of tools do we have to screen this patient and also other patients that present to the clinic 
with concerns about anxiety or other mental health conditions. So I wanted to highlight a few of these. Um, the PSC-17, the Pediatric Symptom Checklist, is a 17, uh, question, 17 question questionnaire that can be given to the child or to the parent um, or both that goes through different complaints. And there's three categories within that. There's internalizing symptoms, which ask questions more targeted to elicit anxiety or depression concerns. Um, then there's some um, externalizing symptoms, which kind of highlight more aggressive tendencies um, or oppositional behaviors. And then the third um, area is attention concern. So trying to look at attention deficit disorder um, or other um, kind of learning issues. And so that can be a very helpful screen that can be used at a well child check, a very quick and easy process to complete that. Um, and then it helps to guide you. And if one of those areas may be an elevated score, you can then follow that up with another questionnaire such as um, the SCARED or GAD7, which we'll talk a little bit more about, um, or Vanderbilt if there's attention concerns. Uh, the SCARED questionnaire, the Screen for Child and Adolescent Anxiety-Related Disorders, um, is another excellent tool that's a bit, a bit longer, more involved. There's a parent um, and a child scoring form that has 41 questions, and the, uh, they can be scored as a 0, 1, or 2 point, depending on the degree of the symptoms. And so um, on this questionnaire, a score of 25 or more indicates an anxiety disorder, and even a score of 30 or higher indicates a more significant um, likelihood that there is an anxiety disorder. Uh, the SCARED questionnaire also can be broken down into um, subcategories and scored based on those subcategories, and that can indicate more specific types of anxiety, such as um, social anxiety or separation anxiety or generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, for example. Um, it is a bit longer of a questionnaire, so if you do have a heads up that a, a child or adolescent or young adult maybe has some of the symptoms that you're concerned for anxiety, um, it can be helpful to send this in advance and have them complete it ahead of time so that you can score it and address the concerns in real time at the visit. And then the GAD7 is a tool that we're all very familiar with where there are seven questions um, that are scored um, either zero through three. And um, on that questionnaire, we can ascertain a degree of anxiety based on the total score. Um, with a score of 5 being mild, anxiety, 10 indicating moderate, and 15 indicating more severe anxiety. The form also has a tool at the bottom where the patient can rate their degree of impairment, which can also be very helpful to understand more about how the anxiety is affecting their day-to-day -day function. Um, this just talks a little bit more about that pediatric symptom checklist, which we talked about. There's also a youth self-report, which is another questionnaire that can be helpful as well. So our differential diagnoses. So when we're talking about anxiety, um, it's also important to consider other diagnoses and um, making sure that we're not missing something that may be uh, masquerading as an anxiety disorder. So I'd like to highlight some of these these ideas. Um, medical conditions, so things to think about would be thyroid disease, asthma, seizure disorders, arrhythmias, PANS, which is a behavioral, um, behavioral conditions associated with strep infections, headache syndromes, tumors, brain tumors, and pheochromocytoma. 
Um, some of the uh, toxicology to con consider would be substance abuse disorders or acute intoxication. And then other psychiatric conditions like ADHD, autism spectrum, learning disorders, depression, and bipolar disorder. So just important to keep in mind that many conditions can mimic anxiety. Labs can occasionally be helpful if you're concerned about a medical condition such as a th um, thyroid testing. Um, and just also keeping in mind that anxiety disorders are highly comorbid with one another um, and also with other mental health conditions. So it's important to really get a good history from the patient and really try to tease out the problems that they're facing and the conditions so that you can make a multifaceted treatment approach to really improve the symptoms. So back to the case. Um, we interviewed this patient and um, talked to the patient with their, with their parent present and also without their parent present. And when we talk to patients, it's important to really understand about everything that they're going through in all areas of their life so we can figure out um, how they're functioning and also any potential triggers for the symptoms that they have. So in keeping in mind, though, that it may or may not be age or developmentally appropriate to interview the, the patient alone. So just keeping in mind their developmental stage, making sure that the family feels comfortable. Um, but it can be you know, extremely helpful in a lot of cases. So some, some things about this patient, the home life, um, he admits to having a tough time with his parents' divorce because he's now living in two homes and he feels less at home in his mom's apartment. There's a lot of noises and other, other things that he's not used to at his usual home. Um, he denied any concerns about abuse from, from family members or domestic violence. Um, his parents get along well. He, he notes he loves his little sister, but sometimes she, he can get frustrated when she plays with his games and toys without asking. In school, he no longer feels as interested because he has other things on his mind. Um, he doesn't find the material all that difficult, and he denies problems with learning or attention, but he just tends to get distracted because he has other things on his mind. Um, he denies any sort of bullying. He has lots of friends at school. Um, otherwise, he has some after-school activities that he's involved in, which he enjoys, including karate and swimming, and he has good support from other family members and friends. So. We have gathered a lot of information about the patient and, and um, his life to kind of understand more about potential triggers for the anxiety um, that he's been, ex you know, his anxiety concerns. And I think it's, again, important to try to, if you can, get the patient alone because some of these things they may not endorse in front of a parent. If there isn't a, a concern for an abuse or something like that, um, you know, that is very helpful to have that time alone so that they can tell you what's going on. And then as a mandatory reporter, um, of course, you would report any of those types of concerns. And I just also want to um, highlight that it's always important to assess for suicidal ideation in these patients as well. So even in patients who have anxiety um, and don't endorse depressive symptoms, it's very critical to, to ask about suicidal ideation. Um, the studies have shown that about 6% of adolescents with anxiety disorder have made a suicide attempt and 9% have suicidal ideation. So it's important to assess for that as well. So talking about the uh, diagnostic criteria, um, there's several anxiety disorders, but here I'll highlight generalized anxiety disorder. So the time course is, is important here where there's at least six months of excessive anxiety and worry that occurs more days than not. 
Um, the individual should find it difficult to control the worry, and the anxiety and worry are associated with three or more of the following, being restlessness, easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating, irritability, muscle tension, sleep disturbance, and the, this uh, anxiety and or physical symptoms impair functioning or cause distress. And I think that's a, a key thing to highlight here is that, um, as Jingjing mentioned in the beginning of the talk, is that some anxiety um, can be productive. And I think as physicians, we are all somewhat anxious, making sure that we're following th up on things and being cautious not to miss things. And that helps us be more careful uh, hard-working physician, but um, when there's impairment of function or the symptoms cause distress, that's when we have a disorder. Um, some other things are that this disturbance shouldn't be caused by the effects of a substance or uh, be ex better explained by another medical condition. Um, speaking of this child, um, this child is undergoing some stressors in their life with their parents going through a divorce. And I wanted to highlight the ACE study, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Affecting Health Outcomes and Mental Health. And this is the ACE pyramid. There was a big study that was done um, in, the, in 1995 to 1997 by the Centers for Disease Control with Kaiser. And they provided questionnaires to a group of 17,000 patients of, uh, from ages um, up to age 17 that um, was given at checkups. Um, this questionnaire was, um, was called the Family History and Health Appraisal Questionnaire. And so the questionnaire was looking for adverse childhood events, which can range from various things to um, loss of a family member, um, separation of parents, neglect, you know, socioeconomic um, difficulties, or various things that can affect the health of, of the patient and their family. And they found on this survey that about one in five participants had three or more of these adverse childhood events, and about um, two-thirds of people had at least one ACE in their life. And they found that the more um, adverse childhood events that a person had, the more likely they were to accumulate trauma, um, leading to disruption of their development and their um, social-emotional abilities, cognitive impairment, and ultimately leading to morbidity and potentially even early death in these patients. Um, some of the outcomes that they looked at for, for people who had increased, um, increased adverse childhood events included things like outcomes as mental health disorders, chronic health conditions, uh, sexually transmitted infections, unintended pregnancies and pregnancy complications, um, difficulty obtaining higher levels of education and employment. Um, and there are definitely groups who were found to be at higher risk of these adverse childhood events, including um, women and um, people from a, a diverse backgrounds as far as um, racial and ethnic minority groups. So um, this was a, a very big study that's still ongoing and that they're processing the data of this. Um, but identifying ACEs is extremely important because there's things that we can do when these are identified to help people cope so that they don't have the cycle of trauma that can lead to the morbidity later on. Um, one example I wanted to highlight was in Minnesota with their Department of Health. They partnered with the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition to create an in intervention program for indigenous boys and young men. 
And this helped them learn how to do non-conflict, uh, non-violent conflict resolution, um, which was helpful just to reduce violence in the community um, and crime. And then the Department of Health also increased home visits and provided child, child care to families managing, managing incarceration. And so by implementing these resources, it helped to reduce the adverse effect of these adverse childhood events. And in our case, you know, certain things we could potentially implement um, for this patient, perhaps support groups or mentorship opportunities um, to help the child better process, you know, the trauma of this event and prevent the pyramid um, from going upwards for this patient. So I just wanted to talk next a little bit about treating anxiety. So this is important for us as clinicians because anxiety is a highly treatable disorder and by treating it we can prevent the morbidity um, and worsening outcomes of uncontrolled mental health conditions. Um, so the, the treatments that I'd like to highlight are cognitive behavioral therapy and then medications with SSRIs. Um, so there was a very large review published in 2017 uh, from the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality with the Mayo Clinic, and the aim was to evaluate the effect, effectiveness of psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy for the treatment of anxiety disorders in children and adolescents and young adults. So the review found statistically significant benefit to treat anxiety disorders with both therapy and medications. But the only type of therapy that really showed statistically significant benefit was cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. Um, medication also was found to be beneficial in the studies as well. And the, the studies included children as young as age six, so the, the guidelines can be extrapolated down to as young as age six based on the review that was done. So based on this data, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry also recommends um, cognitive behavioral therapy and SSRIs be offered to patients with anxiety disorders, including generalized anxiety, social anxiety disorder, separation anxiety, um, and uh, panic disorder. So the, in the studies, um, there were various medications that were used, um, including sertraline, fluvoxamine, fluoxetine, and paroxetine. However, there's no F FDA formally approved um, medication for the treatment of anxiety in, in young people. So some of the decision about which medication to use can just come from um, clinical experience and, and personal preference, but some things to keep in mind might be things such as the family history. If there's a family member who's been on an SSRI and it worked well for them, it may also work well for the patient. Um, or, you know, side effect profiles, tolerances. For younger children, um, the formulation of the medication may come into play, you know, if it's available in a liquid versus a pill if they're not able to swallow pills. So those things can all come into play when making decisions about um, medication to use if it's needed. And then typically, um, in, if you're getting into a situation where you've maybe tried a couple SSRIs and you're not really achieving a benefit or there's severe symptoms, then considering referral to a psychiatrist can also be very helpful here. One thing I would like to highlight as well is the boxed warning on SSRIs, which is always important to keep in mind. Um, the risk of suicidal ideation is a concern for patients under the age of 25. However, the overall risk of this is very small. It's about 1% or less in this age group. So I think it's important to keep in mind that 
Um, suicidal ideation and completed suicide is due to untreated mental health disorders and not due to SSRIs. Um, and then I did also want to highlight this study, the CAMS, the CAMS uh, study, which is a child adolescent anxiety multimodal study, which was a, uh, a trial that was in a randomized controlled trial in 488 youths <clears throat> that were ages 7 to 17 who had a diagnosis of non-OCD anxiety disorder. The study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008, and the patients were randomized to 12 weeks of either CBT alone, sertraline alone, CBT plus sertraline, or placebo. The results of this study showed that combination therapy worked the best. Um, in this group, the medication alone group was about equal to CBT alone. But one interesting thing to highlight is the mean dose of sertraline. Um, in the combination group, it was 134 milligrams a day. In the sertraline alone group, it was 146 milligrams a day. So this highlights that for anxiety disorders, in many cases, a higher dose of SSRI may be needed to adequately control the symptoms. And it's important to keep in mind that we want to treat the patients not just till they're better, but until they're well. So you may need to increase the dose to a fairly, um, a, a little bit higher dose until you achieve that effective dose. So I think that's important to keep in mind and um, think about what your effective dose of the medication may be and try to you know, optimize the medication rather than waiting for weeks and weeks at a much lower dose that's not likely to be effective. And of course, anytime we adjust the dose of medication, it's recommended to um, monitor for side effects, including suicidal ideation. So to conclude our case, um, our patient had an elevated internalizing score on the PSC-17, and their overall score was elevated on SCARED. We discussed treatment options and referred for cognitive behavioral therapy, and over time the symptoms improved um, and medication was not needed. Some resources for anxiety, um, some excellent resources are the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Practice Parameter for the Assessment and Treatment of Children and Adolescents with Anxiety Disorders, um, the Anxiety BC, which is out of Canada. Coping Cat can be a very nice resource, which um, provides online cognitive behavioral therapy worksheets and other resources um, geared towards younger people. And it can be a nice bridge until you're able to establish the patient with someone who can, who can provide cognitive behavioral therapy, since unfortunately some were, were, our system's a, a bit overburdened and we don't always have the providers we need to help our patients in a timely manner. Um, and then I did also want to highlight that many, um, many states have collaborative agreements um, where psychiatrists and other mental health experts can help consult on patients. So in our local hospital, there's the BH Tips program where you can schedule office hours uh, to talk to a child and adolescent psychiatrist about a difficult case that you need some assistance with at our local hospital. Um, and it's important to consider checking your local hospital to see if they have a similar program. Also, Project ECHO, many hospitals have these programs where community providers can um, do, uh, do some sessions to learn more about specific mental health conditions to improve patient outcomes and improve their knowledge about these conditions. So now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Rossetti to talk more about depression in our young people. Thank you so much, Susie. So transitioning over to talk about depression in uh, the young and young adolescent, we'll again start with the case. 
So this is Derek. He's an 18-year-old um, who's been following with you longitudinally uh, for his uh, care and has been relatively healthy, no significant past medical history, and he's coming in for his annual well check. As part of a recent quality improvement initiative within your clinic, you have started screening for depression in your adolescent patient population. And so your staff hands Derek a patient health questionnaire, PHQ-9, when rooming him. And prior to entering the room, your MA pulls you aside to let you know that Derek scored a 10 on this screening questionnaire. So this is a very common clinical scenario that we see in primary care practice. And just wanted to reflect a little bit on how you proceed uh, to evaluate, or if you're already evaluating, uh, for depression as a routine part of your clinic flow, and what resources are available um, both within your clinic or within your community to address um, adolescents and young adults with depression. So first, a little bit more background on depression. This unfortunately affects up to a quarter of adolescents and as we know um, can have really adverse consequences in many facets of our young children and adolescents lives impacting things like school performance, their ability to make and maintain healthy relationships, their physical health, and really critically for this age group, their ability to transition effectively and achieve all of their uh, full potential as adults. Concerningly, we have a lot of opportunity in the healthcare community to improve our metrics in terms of picking up on depressed patients. Only 50% of patients are actually picked up on um, in the primary care setting with diagnosis of depression. The other 50% making it all the way into an adulthood uh, before being diagnosed. And perhaps even more concerningly, of the 50% we are diagnosing in clinic, only half of those patients are receiving evidence-based treatment. So that's why we recommend screening. So why should we screen? As I've already mentioned, uh, depression really does impact um, a not insignificant proportion of our youth and young adolescent patients. And we have excellent treatment evidence-based options for this age group. And we know that early treatment improves outcomes. So it is uh, ripe for intervention. Who should we be screening? Well, as uh, Dr. Mao mentioned early in this introduction, the United States Preventive Service Task Force recommends screening for depression in patients aged 12 to 18 routinely, though they don't specify uh, which mechanisms or the frequency in which we should be screening. The guidelines for adolescent depression uh, treatment in primary care, or the GLAD-PC, uh, covers patients aged up through 21, and they recommend screening annually, which I think coincides nicely with when we're generally seeing patients of this age group in the clinic for their annual well visits. There are certainly patients who have an increased risk of depression who might warrant a more personalized screening approach or might flag you as the provider to think about depression a little bit um, more keenly in, and those will be patients who have had a prior depressive episode, Patients who have a strong family history of depression, whether that be in parents or siblings. Patients who suffer from a chronic medical condition are at increased risk for depression. Patients who um, have substance use disorders or any of the childhood traumas that Dr. Friedman was mentioning, um, things like physical or emotional um, abuse. Other patients that we might consider screening more frequently than that annual exam uh, for depression would be patients who are presenting with really frequent somatic complaints that are challenging um, to find a direct etiology or reason for. And then how do we screen? There are multiple validated surveys available um, that can be instrumented in the primary care setting and beyond um, for providers to use for screening for um, depression in adolescents and young adults. 
very commonly we'll use the PHQ-9 or the patient health questionnaire uh, that I mentioned screening uh, with Derek. And so this, similar to the GAD-7, is scored on a zero to three scale. And um, a score of zero to four would indicate no uh, depression, a score of five to nine, maybe some minimal depression, 10 to 14, moderate depression, 15 to 19, moderate severe depression, and any score greater than 20, really concerning uh, for a possibility of severe depression. But as I mentioned, there are multiple other screening options available, so including variations of that PHQ-9. So there's a simple two-question PHQ-2, as well as a slightly tailored version of the PHQ-9, the PHQ-A, which stands for adolescent, and these are validated down to age 11. The PHQ-2 is easy to implement just as part of even your review of systems on patients, uh, but I will caution it decreases in sensitivity and specificity just a little bit as compared to the performance of the PHQ-9. Perhaps more importantly with the PHQ-2, you'll miss an opportunity to pick up on lethality or suicidality uh, with that two-question questionnaire. So important to be considering adding that to the question, uh, your line of questioning if you're using that variation to screen. But again, there are multiple other scales that are validated um, to be used for screening for depression. So finding one that fits your clinic flow and um, that doesn't muddy the waters too much for you as you're trying to pick up on, um, on depression within the clinic realm. So back to our case. Uh, as I mentioned, Dare scored a 10 on his PHQ-9, which as I just stated, would indicate concern for moderate depression. And so do we have enough information based off of that uh, to make new therapeutic or diagnostic plans or do we need more? And of course we need more. Um, these are just meant for screening. So um, these instruments are meant for screening for depression, not for the, making the clinical diagnosis. And as you might imagine, as you read through the questions on the PHQ-9, there are certain circumstances that might result in an elevated scale that are not uh, consistent with a diagnosis of a clinical depression. And that could be something like grief or even a bad breakup uh, that might have an adolescent scoring um, higher on those screening questionnaires. So when looking at a diagnosis or a possible diagnosis of major depressive uh, disorder, we really want to consider the DSM criteria and to see if our patient meets uh, that clinical diagnosis. We're looking to see if they have at least five of the nine key features of major depressive disorder, one of which must be depressed or irritable mood or anhedonia as a component of those five uh, key features to make that diagnosis. But importantly, it's not just about having five key features. We're looking to see that symptoms have been um, in, in duration of at least two weeks. And most importantly, that there is some impairment of functioning um, and some, uh, some change, some clinical change in the patient's uh, other capabilities, very similar to a diagnosis of anxiety um, as a clinical diagnosis. Important at this point to also be considering a differential diagnosis for major depressive disorder. So that could be things as simple as you know, routine teen moodiness in which you would not expect to see any impairment, uh, substance use or medication-induced depression, um, medical disorders such as anemia or thyroid disorders, and then importantly other um, psychiatric disorders just like anxiety or PTSD or, or otherwise. So, um, once you have an idea as, as the number of key features that your patient uh, might have uh, with concern for depression, you're not only looking at 
the number, uh, but also that level of impairment that they're experiencing to help you degrade uh, the severity of their depression as either mild or moderate or severe. In mild depression, we consider those in patients generally with five to six of the key features and only mild impairment in their activities of daily living. And then on the severe end, patients who are usually meeting about nine of the key criteria and are really having severe impairment, moderate falling in between. And this has consequences uh, in terms of our uh, therapeutic plans. Very important, just like in anxiety, that when we are concerned for a diagnosis of clinical depression, we are asking about suicide uh, risk and lethality. So the ASQ, or the Ask Suicide Screening Questionnaire, is another validated survey to be asking uh, specifically about suicide risk in our patients. And generally, I try to see, treat this like any other sensitive topic in clinic by kind of normalizing the potential experience um, and then asking the patient if that sounds like something that has happened to them. So for example, um, frequently when I see patients with depression in my clinic, sometimes they have extremely sad thoughts thoughts that they um, don't want to wake up in the morning, or thoughts that they would be better off if they weren't in their families or dead, or thoughts of harming themselves. Have you ever had those types of thoughts? And again, that can help open the door to those conversations, normalize those conversations between you as the provider and the patient themselves, but also importantly, normalize the conversations for the caregivers or the par parents um, of your uh, younger patients. Moving on to treatment, as I mentioned, after you assess the severity of depression, uh, then we can decide a little bit about uh, what is the right collaborative approach to treatment with the patient in front of us and understanding all of the dynamics that go into each individual unique uh, patient and family needs. For patients with mild depression, so again, five of the nine key criteria, not severe impairment, it's appropriate to start with active support, um, and that importantly is very different than watchful waiting. So when we talk about active support, that's things like recommending lifestyle changes, enhancing sleep patterns, enhancing physical activity, focus on nutrition, connecting with peer support, um, school-based support, and really seeing these patients every one to two weeks frequently to reassess their level of impairment and their symptoms to make sure we're picking up early on any progression. And then of course, if things are improving and they clinically improve spacing out the frequency with which you're evaluating them. For patients with moderate depression, there's opportunity for therapy, again, based on local resources available and both patient and caregiver preferences. So cognitive behavioral therapy um, has excellent evidence in both prepubescent and postpubescent patients. Interpersonal therapy for adolescents, as the name implies, has good evidence uh, for the postpubescent patient or adolescent or young adult. And then of course, pharmacotherapy, either with or without therapy, uh, the workhorse uh, for depression being SSRIs in our youth and our adolescent patients. In patients that we are considering a diagnosis of severe depression in the clinic, it's really critical at that time to make sure um, that we are safe to be managing these patients in the outpatient setting, or if not, we are involving our crisis or emergency services or local mental health experts, again, depending on severity of impairment and certainly on um, lethality risk. But again, similar to moderate depression, uh, utilizing pharmacotherapy and um, cognitive therapy to help treat their disease. So when we start um, dis the discussion about uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs for the treatment of depression, 
or any other illness, it really is important to make sure that we're doing adequate um, guidance and counseling to our patients and caregivers about what to expect. And this includes the common side effects. This includes less common side effects, but we would definitely want our parents and our patients and caregivers to notify us if they were occurring. The anticipated time that we expect to see effects, our anticipated frequency of follow-up needs, and then um, the anticipated duration of treatment. So when talking about the initi initiation of SSRIs in youth and young adults, commonly we're starting at the subtherapeutic dose because of the initial common side effects, which are most commonly gastrointestinal, like stomach upset or stomach ache or headaches. And those tend to be overcomable. So giving parents and patients um, the tools to say, okay, if we just kind of lean in a little bit more, patient, all my patients tend to improve uh, from those side effects so that we can then increase dose and actually get uh, to therapeutic benefit for their mood is really important um, so that they can kind of anticipate uh, those issues. Less common side effects, but important for patients to know about and caregivers to know about, our, um, our act, the activation that can occur early when we're starting our SSRIs, and so psychomotor agitation, uh, irritability, and those um, sometimes can be severe enough that we might change which SSRI we use or definitely dose adjust, so we want families to know about that. Similar to what Susie was mentioning, we also like to discuss uh, that FDA box warning on SSRIs. Again, because it helps us, I think, in our comprehensive counseling that we're providing uh, the family unit, when we talk about all the important things that we need to be very mindful for in these first couple weeks of initiating therapy and normalizing that question about suicidality for our patients. So the activation that can occur, sometimes the energy levels are improving well before the mood is improving, and so um, our young adolescent patients might have increased thoughts of suicide, and so adding that in to the routine check-in of those first couple weeks with the patient and, and the parent, whether it's in the morning or afternoon after school, how was school, how was your day, how's your mood, how's your thoughts, are you having any severe low mood, thoughts of hurting yourself, even when it's challenging uh, to be asking our loved ones those questions, we again want to normalize it and normalize it early. And then, of course, as many uh, of us know, the risk of potentially unmasking mania uh, or bipolar disorder if a patient is presenting with depression but truly uh, has bipolar disorder, and that usually um, is months out. But again, we want to counsel patients and families so they can anticipate these things uh, should they arise later on in time. As I mentioned, uh, anticipated time to effect, usually patients start feeling better in terms of their energy in two to three weeks, but really we're not seeing our mood effects until um, six weeks or so. We wanna be following up frequently, ideally every one to two weeks, which is obviously very challenging in a busy primary care practice to make sure that our side effects are tolerable and that we're dose adjusting appropriately to get people on a therapeutic dose. And in terms of anticipated duration of treatment for depression, a lot of this is taken from the adult literature, but we aim for remission, so total remission of depressive symptoms. So as, as Dr. Susie said, well, not just better. So total remission of depressive symptoms, and then we would continue that SSRI for another six months or more commonly a year before regrouping to decide if it's appropriate to wean that medication off and discuss what that process looks like. Treatment uh, for evidence-based treatment and FDA-approved treatment for um, young patients and adolescents, fluoxetine has the most evidence behind it, generally starting at about 10 milligrams daily, which is um, subtherapeutic, but again, gets us through those initial common side effects, titrating up quickly and ideally up to a minimum effective dose of 20 milligrams and increasing as needed up to about 60 if you need to. 
It's FDA approved down to age eight and importantly has a long half-life for those youth um, who might end up accidentally missing doses. An alternative FDA approved option is esaltalopram for this age group um, and that's FDA approved down to age 12. Comprehensive uh, patient therapeutic plans involve not only anticipatory guidance and pharmacologic treatment plans, but also for our patients with depression, a really robust safety plan. And that includes reviewing the risk and protective factors for suicide, as well as importantly, means restriction. So locking up medications, safe medication handling, that includes the SSRI that our patients may or not be taking. Um, access to sharps and limiting access to sharps, and then of course, very importantly, access to firearms. And so when our patients who have firearms in the home, asking them very specifically about uh, where they exist, if it's possible to remove firearms from the home, even just for those first few weeks where we're titrating therapy, where that activation occurs and their adolescents are getting energy back, um, could it be stored at a friend's or a family member's house to really remove uh, that risk from the situation? And then if that's not possible or isn't amenable to the family, really discussing um, kind of safe handling and uh, safe lockage and storage of those firearms. And then we want our adolescents and young adults to be able to identify a safety network. So who are the three people that they trust that they would contact if they were having a crisis, um, if they were having thoughts of suicidality or self-harm, who would they contact to alert for that? as well as that the patient and the family caregiver unit know what to do in the event of a crisis. Um, what are our local crisis uh, support uh, options? What are the local hospital options and so forth? So for, to conclude on uh, Derek's case, he unfortunately did not have significant improvement with fluoxetine uh, despite uptitration and was transitioned to esaltalopram with really excellent effect. Some resources for depression. Um, so as I previously mentioned, there are guidelines published that, uh, that multiple um, different groups weighed in, to, weighed in on for the treatment of adolescent depression in primary care. Uh, those can be found at gladpc.org. Underneath um, those guidelines include not only really great evidence-based uh, options for the primary care uh, clinician, they also include links to many of the surveys that I referenced um, in terms of screening options, as well as excellent flow charts. Um, if you're looking for just quick reference materials on if my adolescent or young adult screens positively, um, how to kind of work through uh, further clinic follow-up, and then potential treatment options. And so I really uh, encourage folks to check out that resource. And the age range, again, includes up to age 21. So recognizing that our young adults are frequently folks who are falling through the cracks there um, and have opportunity to improve both diagnosis and treatment. The National Network of Psychiatry um, access programs, similar to what Susie was discussing, we really wanna to try to equip our primary care providers, no matter where they're practicing, with access to mental health expertise. And so this was an initiative that was initially rolled out in Massachusetts and then expanded. So you can search by state at this website to see what state offerings uh, your particular state might have to connect you, especially for maybe uh, more challenging cases or simply um, if you're just building up your comfort level and managing depression in children and young adults, um, you might be able to connect with a local expert uh, or even not so local expert to help guide you through um, options as you're trying to link your patients. 
And then finally, no talk about depression would ever be complete uh, without uh, referencing the 98 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. So this is formerly known as a suicide hotline. Uh, so uh, the name changed, but still has a really amazing bank of resources for both providers and for patients and caregivers. Um, so I highly recommend um, uh, getting familiar with those sorts of resources and then again trying to encourage your patients and families similarly to also access these really helpful resources when dealing with depression in children and young adolescents. Thank you so much, Allison and Susie. It's also really helpful to have those resources that you both provided at the end so that if we can't remember exactly what you said during the talk, we can always go there and get some more information and, and um, also connect with experts to help guide us with our patient care. So that's really wonderful. Thank you so much. Now, Allison, um, I've heard some conflicting information on the news about social media and its impact on mental health. How much does social me media contribute to anxiety and depression? Yeah, so a really hot button topic, right? Because we noticed that astronomical rise in depression and mood disorders with our youth and adolescents as we noticed that astronomical rise in social media and social media use. There have been lots of studies that have tried to look at correlation and causation in multiple different ways. And I think like in most medicine, it just depends a little bit. Um, and so looking really uh, more specifically at the quantity and the quality of the social media interaction that our youth and adolescents are having, um, which modalities that they're using, how much the use is impacting their life, so things like sleep habits, things like self-comparison, especially on uh, modalities such as Instagram, where it's easy to look at the best moments of the best filtered lives and, and kind of cross-compare uh, your own life to that. Talking about things like cyberbullying with our youth is also important, right? But on the other side, there are many benefits to social media. So um, relationship formation, networking with people who aren't in your immediate community, hearing actively about news and current topics. And so it really is about trying to establish good, healthy practices uh, and with social media and to help our youth and young adults identify unhealthy practices, mm -hmm. amount of time spent, um, self-comparison, self-loathing as a result. Um, to really make sure that they're interfacing properly with a potentially useful tool, but also one that might cause harm. Perfect. That's really helpful, I think, actionable information. Um, and Susie, I know you discussed that adverse childhood events can lead to higher rates of anxiety and depression, but are there also protective factors that could help decrease those risks? Yes. Um, you know, definitely there are things that we can do, and I think um, having an open line of communication with uh, children and young adults is one of the best things that we can do to provide support and um, asking them about their mental health and um, especially in light of the pandemic and um, I mentioned before the isolation that many have faced kind of checking in and seeing um, how they're doing so having that mm -hmm. good social support is very helpful and protective but also other resources um, you know, when we talked about the adverse childhood events, some of the local health departments have implemented a number of initiatives to to help protect those who are more at risk. So, mm -hmm. you know, offering mentorship and support groups and other opportunities, educational educational endeavors to um, you know to help recognize when kids are struggling and also provide resources for them can be very helpful. Okay, great. Good to hear that there are ways that we can help people. And is there a minimum age at which you would diagnose a kid with anxiety? I don't know that there's a set minimum age. I think definitely, you know, younger children, um, 
especially like under the age of five, it can be fairly challenging because they're not able to really adequately um, necessarily tell you some of those more concepts about their emotion, um, you know, less, less difficult, more difficulty with those kinds of things. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know that there's a absolute age limit that you could diagnose, but the resources that um, we cited in our presentation um, talk about up to under age six mm -hmm. um, and above, but I think you definitely can consider it as a potential diagnosis for younger children. It just may be um, looking again more for those like somatic complaints and um, exploring their history and um, for adverse childhood events and those kinds of things. Okay, and if anxiety or depression starts in childhood or adolescence, is there a difference in prognosis for those patients compared to an adult who develops depression or anxiety? There's a, there definitely can be in some cases. So um, some studies have shown that when you're younger and you're diagnosed with a mental health condition like depression or anxiety, you're more likely to have recurrent episodes throughout your life. And so the risk of relapse can be higher um, versus adults may be more likely if they're older to have uh, an isolated episode that doesn't return. So definitely um, needing ongoing monitoring for these uh patients who in childhood or adolescence or as young adults have had um, episodes of mental health problems kind of keeping an eye out for mm -hmm. the rest of their life for relapse and other concerns. Um, okay. Yes. Okay, that's um, unfortunately to hear. So this isn't something that most kids outgrow. Yeah, there's, de there's definitely a risk for ongoing concerns related to mental health and relapse. Um, though that may not be the case for every every child. So mm -hmm. it's important just to continue to assess and also keeping an eye out for other mental health conditions since um, it, the initial presentation could be that of depression or anxiety, but could indicate a risk for things like bipolar disorder um, or other mental health conditions later in life. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Um, and Allison, just to kind of, I'm gonna bring in a case if that's okay with you, because sure. I have some questions regarding kind of consent for a minor and legalities related to treating a minor. Um, let's say we have a 14 year old who is coming in for their well visit and screens positive for depression on whatever questionnaire you perform. And um, when you're discussing depression in that situation with the minor, would you initially have that discussion with just the child themselves or would it be prudent to involve the parent right away? Yeah, great question. So some of this is always a little bit clinically dependent on both the age of the child and their cognitive capabilities. But in general, it is recommended that you interview that adolescent independently to get more information as you would uh, for any annual adolescent as you're handling kind of that private sensitive health information and kind mm -hmm. of training them up to talk to their provider uh, by themselves. And that's a great time to really ferret out a little bit if the positive screen is concerning for clinical depression or um, something else, uh, you know, a temporary situation, a breakup situation uh, where the screen is positive but you're not actually concerned for depression. Mm -hmm. And then similarly, getting that collateral information from the third party, the parents or the caregivers, if there is uh, more specific concerns, again, independently, mm -hmm. ideally, um, before kind of collaborating together as a group. Okay. Are there caveats to that? So for example, you know, it's, as you mentioned, it's very important to screen for lethality. What if that patient is reporting self-harm? Yeah, great point. So usually when we're doing our introduction with families and caregivers about the concern and patients directly about the concern for you know depression, we do wanna talk about the limits of confidentiality in that space as patients really do expect doctor-patient 
confidentiality and anything they say to kind of be held uh, with the provider and stop there. But there are exceptions to that in lethality or suicidality, thoughts of self-harm, especially intentional thoughts of harm, um, does kind of push that limit. And so if patients um, do endorse suicidality, it is uh, the provider's responsibility to act on that, and that would involve divulging to caregivers, parents, uh, legal guardians, as well as escalating care, mm -hmm. uh, even potentially to use those kind of crisis network needs. Okay, um, and do you need parental consent to start medications? So this becomes challenging, right? I think in an ideal situation, if a parent is declining treatment of any kind, depression or otherwise, you really wanna spend added effort hearing their point of view as to why they might be declining medication. Um, because as I mentioned, this is really a group affair to treat uh, young patients and adolescents with depression. And so trying to build that therapeutic alliance, trying to understand the concerns of the parents for why they may or may not uh, be interested in medication, and then trying to work really closely and collaboratively to see if you can get all, this, all on the same page is definitely best case scenario. Okay, and in that same vein, what if you have difficulty getting the parent on the same page. You know, a lot of parents may say, oh, this is just teenage behavior or they're being melodramatic and may not be accepting that the child may have a mental health disorder. What, what, are, what would you um, propose would be a reasonable approach in that situation? Yeah, so certainly this is, can be a really emotionally charged topic. One, because no one wants to see their child not doing well or even potentially have a chronic illness, right? Mm -hmm. We all want our children to be just growing up happy and healthy and well-adjusted. Um, and so it is challenging, especially if the caregiver wasn't necessarily anticipating this at a visit uh, to uncover unmasked depression, as we reported. It's very frequently that these children not coming in saying, hey, I'm depressed or I have, I'm anxious, that we're screening for that and then picking it up real time. And so leaning in a little bit to hear that parent's concerns and their past experiences of depression, exploring the potential stigma of mental health that the parents are thinking or believing in, and then really trying to, to pivot a little bit to say, okay, teenage mutinous, absolutely that happens. Sleeping in on the weekends, absolutely happens. Excessive gaming on the weekends, big dramatic breakups, absolutely that can be part of the normal teenage experience. But looking at that level of impairment and pointing out that level of impairment can sometimes help parents uh, kind of reconceptualize that this is actually a problem that we have evidence-based therapies to address and not just routine expected behavior. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. That's that's really helpful. All right, we're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point from each of our presenter. Susie? So I just wanna, as my final point, just keep in mind to clinicians in the primary care office um, that anxiety disorders are very, very common in children, adolescents, and young adults. And it's very helpful to screen for these disorders um, and considering to implement a screening tool for mental health concerns at routine well-child checks, um, even in younger children. And Allison? Very similar. So I want to encourage folks to start routine screening, if not already screening in those patients 12 and up uh, for depression, and then have an action plan in place for what you would do within your local community to help assist these patients get the evidence-based treatment that they need to really improve their outcomes. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to go to our website at ccme.osu.edu to get your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points. Next week, I'll have PharmD Jen Sabatino here with me to discuss updates in the treatment of prediabetes and diabetes. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.